It's Friday afternoon. We've locked the door this week while we contemplate how very, very essential we feel, and also because it's time for another edition of our weekly podcast, Tales from the Brown Desk. I'm Jake Rigney of Rigney Law, LLC. With me as usual is my law partner, wife, and hand sanitizer expert, Cassie Rigney. Our host is Terry Ulm. Friendly reminder, Tales from the Brown Desk is a free-flowing conversation involving two foul-mouthed attorneys. It may include graphic descriptions of sexual activity, violence, and mansplaining. It may not be suitable for children, women of a certain age, the sisterhood of the traveling pants, people who use bro more than once a week, or Rand Paul's punctured look. Listener discretion is advised. Here's Terry. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jake. Hello. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Terry. How are you guys today? Hang, no, no, uh, grouchy. Yeah, grouchy's the word I'm looking for. How about you, Cassie? Still uh, dealing with allergies, um, so every time I sneeze or get a runny nose, I think I have the Rona. (laughs) I'm glad you don't. I'm glad you don't. So this episode, we're going to start off with some questions. Uh, There is a local group of activists who are part of a global environmental movement. They use nonviolent civil disobedience to try to convince governments to declare a climate and ecological emergency and take immediate action to address climate change. Civil disobedience can lead to getting arrested, and this group has some questions for you. Okay. One of their questions is, is what kind of charges can be filed against someone who gets arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience? Yeah, I, I think Cassie's going to answer this question. Um, but before that, I do want to say uh, we are required by the rules of professional conduct to uh, mention that we are not encouraging you to commit any crimes. <laughs> uh, we, we have to say this, and we also believe it's true. Um, you'd be better off finding some other way to make your point. But uh, beyond that, uh, we can we can sort of explain generally what might happen to you. Well, generally, you know, just brainstorming, we're probably talking about, you know, the laws that you'd be breaking would be um, disorderly conduct or t- criminal trespass. Um, they're both misdemeanors. Uh, they're minor offenses. Um, so, if that, yeah. When you say misdemeanor, does that mean that they would serve time in jail? There would be a fine related with that? Both. Both? How long in jail? Well, well and I say both are potential. Um, if it's, it, and here's the line it's either an infraction or it's a criminal offense, and criminal offense are misdemeanors or felonies. Criminal offense, even the lowest level misdemeanor, you can go to jail. Um, uh, The disorderly conduct is a B misdemeanor that you could go for a maximum of 180 days in jail. Uh, Trespasses, uh, A misdemeanor, which is 365 days. Uh, Now, reviewing the statute, and this was new to me, um, they've enhanced some trespass to include the airport and funeral services and in those cases it would be a class six level six felony what would it be if let's say they wanted to block the flow of traffic and blocked the roads and traffic from getting through would that fall in the trespass or Mm, you know and i meant to look and see because i want to say that there is some kind of offense for traffic but um either one of those could apply i mean yeah um i don't know off the top of my head like i said i meant to i meant to look it up to see if there's an infraction for flow of traffic um yeah i i believe that um blocking traffic um is an infraction it's a ticket so you can't get jail time for it. You can get fined. But more importantly, uh, the street is owned by the government. Um, so if you stand in the street and the government tells you to move and you don't move off their property or uh, off the particular part of their property they're telling you to move off of, then they can arrest you uh, for not for not moving. 
Okay. And then they're also wondering, what is the cost associated with getting arrested? And to elaborate on this, this would be like the fines that I think we touched on already. And then also um, hiring an attorney for representation. Like what would be the total cost? I mean, that, you can. I mean, I can tell you a maximum fine of a B misdemeanor is a thousand dollars, and it's five thousand for an A misdemeanor. I can't speak to any other attorneys' fees. Um, and then, you know, if you're talking about, you know, just the criminal aspect, or or do you really think that you have a civil claim against the police for violating free speech? That's a totally different ballpark, and that's not. I don't know what civil attorneys charge in that case either so um you know are you gonna lose your job you know if you get arrested or have a criminal charge i I don't know is that what they consider cost somewhere from a couple hundred dollars to a few thousand potentially even more yeah if if you went to trial and lost you'd be assessed court costs those usually are around 185 dollars um depending it depends a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, it's a little different. But um, then, yeah, attorneys' fees can vary wildly depending on what you're trying to do. If you've never been arrested before, it's likely that they could offer that you could be offered a diversion. But if you are, there are usually additional fees attached to that as well. Um, those can run three, four, five hundred dollars, I think, sometimes. Um, so it it's I mean, I'd be surprised if a misdemeanor arrest ever ended up costing somebody $10,000, but it'll run into four figures, especially if you're hiring a, um, a good lawyer. I think another thing that um, is associated with cost would be bond. Would, if someone participated in nonviolent civil disobedience and they were arrested, would there be a bond or a bail? There could be. Uh, experience tells me, uh, certainly first-time offenders, something like this, they would not, they would be released on their own recognizance, uh, but they are eligible for bond, uh, and every individual person is evaluated standing alone. So, you know, you're, you hear pastors and things like that who goes out for their first-time offense, maybe, yeah, somebody with a vastly different criminal history, maybe they would get some kind of bond. Um, so that's, I mean, it's on the table for sure. Yeah, the, the Indiana Constitution guarantees the right to bond for a person who's been charged with a criminal offense, um, except for murder. Um, you can be held no bond on murder. But for the rest of them, the court has to give you some kind of bond. Um, if we're talking about a disorderly conduct arrest in Marion County in Indianapolis, uh, it's unlikely that that person is going to get held in jail. Um, most likely they'll be released on their own recognizance fairly quickly. Um, I'd say, you know, the average jail stay for something like that's probably going to be between 12 and 36 hours. Um, and they'll either be given a very small bond that they can make, um, or they'll just be released on their own recognizance unless, you know, someone has a really, you know, a significant criminal history. Um, and there is a point where even the judges in Marion County, um, will run out of patience and you can be held on misdemeanors if you go out and you pick up a bunch of them in a row. So, um, especially if you've got another one pending somewhere else, uh, getting arrested has the uh, makes it a lot more likely that you'll end up sitting in jail, especially if your older pending case is in some other county, right? Because if you get arrested in Marion County and you've got some older pending case somewhere else, the prosecutor in the older case can move to revoke your bond there. So even if you get out in Marion County, say you've got a pending misdemeanor in Hancock County too. Hancock County prosecutor will find out you got arrested. When they do, they'll file a motion to revoke your bond. And yeah, they're not so forgiving out there. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly what that judge will do, but 
I have seen that judge revoke people's bonds before for picking up new cases and then holding them in the jail. So it's, it's, uh, your criminal history is going to be the largest determining factor on whether or not you end up being held for any arrest. And that's true. You know, whether you're blocking traffic because you want to complain about the environment or, or you rob somebody or you got a DUI. What does the process of getting arrested look like from when, like, when do you know you're arrested? The cops say, I'm arresting you. When you have handcuffs on, like, when do you know you're now in their custody? And where do you go? Well, first off, they don't have to tell you anything, really. You need to follow their instructions according to them. And whether it's lawful or not, that determination is something that a judge would decide later. Um handcuffs is a really good sign um i think i touched on this before if you're not sure the question is am i free to leave am i free to leave uh and if the answer is yes and you're in that situation asking that question i suggest you just turn and leave um um but uh, so they, you will be processed in somehow uh fingerprints photograph you know, you basically get booked in, a bond will be set. Some Most of the low-level offenses, like we're talking about, um, counties have prescribed formulas. Uh, that's how somebody who gets arrested for a low-level nonviolent offense on Friday after courts are closed doesn't actually have to sit in jail till Monday. They can, once they get processed through and do their thing, they can all agree this is what somebody gets. Um and then somebody, you know, once you're in, you have to be booked all the way in. You can, I guess, call a loved one, have them pay. Uh, it's my understanding you can pay by phone and card now, and then you'll get released. Uh, unfortunately, in Marion County, that release process can take anywhere from hours to days. It was my understanding that um, processing out had resulted in some weeks-long delay. Weeks? Yes. Uh Give a little shout out to fellow attorneys, Waples and Hanger. If you think you've been held illegally by the Marion County Sheriff's Department, they are currently putting together a class action lawsuit uh, for delayed release. Uh, they got uh, federal court approval for a class action lawsuit against them. Yeah, I, I had one. I had one that was particularly frustrating, right? Or, uh, and the case is resolved, I think I can talk about it. I'm, I'm just not going to mention my client's name. So my client, they alleged my client was in violation of his um, probation. Uh, he eventually admitted to a violation, and he got four days, maybe four days in, in the county jail. So I think he actually got like 180, but he had 176 in, so he had to do four more, right? Um and that was on Friday uh, that he got that sentence. So he got four. And what the way we usually describe it is four do two, right? So uh, he had to, he got four days, but he, with good time credit, he'd be out in two, which means that happened on Friday. He was supposed to be out on Sunday, right? That was his second day. But the jail wouldn't release him because they couldn't confirm that that was what was supposed to happen and they needed a supervisor's approval to process it so they weren't processing it. So he sat in jail at least another day or two because they weren't sure that four divided by two was two. Wow. Yeah. It was, um, it was real frustrating. I called around all over the place like, he's supposed to be out. What are you doing? And they're like, well... Check back tomorrow. So if someone's arrested for civil disobedience and they go to jail and they go through the whole process, once they're out, would they have to appear before a judge down the road, or is it done? Uh, they will most likely. It's difficult to predict because it can happen a couple of different ways, but... They will most likely have to appear one more time, 
Um, although if they hire an attorney before their first hearing, it's possible they may never end up having to go to court again. Um, there, there are things an attorney can do that can sort of push the case along without you having to go to court and then eventually resolve the case without you having to go to court. So occasionally I get hired and then my client never actually appears in front of a judge. Um, that doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen sometimes, especially on low level misdemeanors. Um, but in the normal non-attorney aided procedure uh you go to jail you get out and they give you a date to come back um and you have to go back that day and find out whether or not the prosecutor's office has agreed has decided to file charges against you um if you're in custody they usually bring you back within like a couple of days because they have to bring you back quick if you're in custody if you're out of custody it's usually a, you know, three four or five weeks um, and you come back and you find out whether you've been charged or not. If you have been charged, then you have an initial hearing um, and your criminal process starts and you eventually go to one of those courts that handles misdemeanors in Marion County and you uh, go back as many times as it takes to resolve your case. Um, if they don't charge you, then you don't then you just go back that once and find out that you didn't get charged and then you're done. So we talked a little bit about Miranda rights in a past episode. Um, what types of rights does one have or don't, doesn't have anymore when they're getting arrested? Well, I mean, the Constitution applies, but I mean, it's not the kind of thing where I can give someone a checklist. I mean, like I've said before, you're not going to win a legal argument with a police officer on the street. Um, I mean... You have the right to peacefully, or you have a right to gather. You have a right to free speech. Um, but, you know, those are rights that ultimately get enforced by a judge down the road if they are determined to be violated uh, on, on scene. Now, if the police officers were starting to ask questions, do they have the right to remain silent even if their Miranda rights weren't read to them? Can they not answer questions? Are they required? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you don't have to have your... Being read your rights doesn't determine whether or not you can keep your mouth shut. You know, we don't... You know, in theory, don't live in a country where you can be tortured to be forced to speak. Uh, your Miranda warning is really just a warning like, hey, you know, you're now on notice that we're triggering that we're going to use this against you in court if we get there. Because you've been determined to be in custody and being interrogated. That doesn't mean that other statements that you make cannot be used against you. Um, because you can voluntarily make statements out of police custody and those can absolutely be used against you. Um, you know, what, what do they say? Depending on what book of evidence or interpretation of evidence, there are 18 to 21 exceptions to the hearsay rule. The biggest one is uh, statements of the accused. So, I mean, if they're asking you questions and you just start talking to them, that's consensual. Can you not talk to them? Yes. Yeah, you you just look at them and you, you either don't say anything or you say, I choose to remain silent. Now, going back to the types of charges that one could face, how long do these charges stay on their record and um, how long... Does someone have to wait before they can be expunged? Well, they're, I mean, they're treated as just as any other crime. I mean, they're not going to be, like I explained before, you have to take these things one step at a time. And the fact that these laws were broken for the specific purpose of civil disobedience is a consideration of what happens after you've been convicted. So up to that point, it is a criminal offense. They will stay on your record until and unless they are expunged. A misdemeanor, you have to wait five years after the, after the conviction. And can you expunge your record more than once in your lifetime? You can expunge arrests that did not result in a conviction. Um, and you only have to wait a year to do that. So, um, if you, if you got arrested for a misdemeanor and then, uh, got a diversion, um, the state dismissed your case, 
at the end of that, you one year from the date of your arrest, you can file a, a petition to expunge and have the arrest removed from your record so that people can't even see that you were arrested. But yeah, if you get convicted, it's five years. And with convictions, you can only do it uh, once in your life. So once you once you get convicted and then you decide to do an expungement, you better be done with your criminal <laughs> arrests because uh, you won't be able to expunge them again. Now, just going back a little bit to rights and the right to gather, they ha- people have a right to gather. And when do you, when do when are those rights breaking the law? The Supreme Court has said that governments can limit because in the nature of free speech, because all of that, it's it's time and place limitations, and those limitations can't be content driven of the speech, but it has to be like safety driven. That's why they're allowed to make laws that say you shouldn't gather in the middle of the street, and the laws set that up that said that you have to balance the right to free speech and the right, you know, to gather against interests in safety um you know it's reasonable you know the courts have said it's reasonable to say we don't want people gathering in the street because that's dangerous that's not only that's dangerous for everybody um so those are the the types of limitations yeah just uh, normal con uh, time place and manner restrictions um could you elaborate on time and yeah on the time restrictions what well, do you mean by that? They vary. Uh, I, I mean, I guess the easiest way to explain is the government has the right to, um, or I guess it's the easier way to say it is, your right to peaceably assemble does not include the right to basically get together and do whatever you want whenever you want to do it in whatever way you want to do it. So you can decide that you want to have a parade, but you have to apply and that's speech, um, but you still have to apply with your local government and get a permit to do it in a specific way at a specific time so that, for example, you're not trying to have a parade where you shoot fireworks off in a random neighborhood at 3 in the morning, right? That's that's what I mean by time. They're not going to let you um, do some extremely loud thing in a public place right outside somebody's house at 3 a.m. because that's... Not appropriate. That makes sense. Well, I want to say just for this group in general, when I was a prosecutor, there is um, community policing practices in Marion County, and I am aware that uh, they may wish to reach out to the local district um, because I know other groups had, and I was consulted as a prosecutor as far as trying to schedule these things. Um And that way, I think sometimes they've done these protests and decided, you know, all first-time offenders are going to be offered diversions on scene or, um, you know, help coordinate places where, you know, you're just going to have more flexibility and friendliness from the law enforcement, especially if you know you're going to encounter them. And that doesn't necessarily mean avoiding uh, arrest, but you know, if the police say, look, if you schedule to come, we can, you know, if you do it on Tuesday morning, we can have an officer there to process people, you know, versus if you do it by surprise on Friday night, I mean, you could end up getting stuck in there and you know, it's, it's just an option for that group if they're interested in reaching out. I mean, the district, they have, they have, the local law enforcement districts have worked in the past. Yeah. And like, it's funny, right? It's funny to say uh, that we're going to go out and commit some crimes and we're going to coordinate our crimes with the police before right. we do it. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to make sure the police knows. But that's weirdly kind of the point of, uh, you know, of doing that, right? Is you're getting arrested. You know, you're going to get arrested. Your plan is essentially to get arrested, and that's okay, I guess. If that's if you think that's going to bring, you know, more a bigger spotlight to your issue, then okay. Um, but the police are a lot easier to deal with if you coordinate with them ahead of time, so that they know that way they can have paddy wagons there, so they don't have you all cuffed up sitting on the side of the road uncomfortable 
um, so that they have enough police officers there to deal with all of you. One guy with a gun is going to be scared trying to arrest 15 different people. In fact, he doesn't have enough handcuffs to arrest everyone. <laughs> you know, he might have three or four pairs on him, but that's it. Um, so if you coordinate with the district that you're planning your protest in, um, they can plan to have the kind of manpower there to make sure no one's nerves get frayed, uh, which significantly decreases the likelihood of somebody getting maced in the face or tased or one of those other things that we see happening sometimes. Um, of course, that might also be part of the plan of the protests. So I, I don't know. Whichever way you want to do it, again, we're not... We're not condoning any activity that results in an arrest. We we think it would be wiser to do something else. But if you're going to do it, yeah, I guess have the cops. Let, let the cops know so they're not so freaked out about it. So now we're going to move on and touch on the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it It is placing a hold on jury trials across the state and this means that Hoosiers are spending a longer time behind bars than they normally would. And my question to you is, is what is normal? Like, how long does someone sit behind bars and await oh. their trial? Uh, it, it depends very much on the type of case and the person's criminal history, uh, and especially whether or not they were on probation. Um, but... For example, a level five felony, I think those are usually supposed to be done in, uh, I think, either two to four or three to six months. And then from there, it kind of goes up with some of the other ones where they could be done in, um, you, you'd expect some of them to be done within six months. And then with murders, it's it's often more like a year. But it, it can vary wildly from case to case. And um, sometimes it's... Uh, there, there are just there are going to be exceptions, and so it's it's difficult to say you know, that there's some sort of rule about it because it's not um, it's not always predictable. So there was a study released last month that found Indiana struggles with substance abuse at the fifth highest rate in the nation. Now, with this ranking, one can just assume that in Indiana and in Indianapolis, many people have been arrested for drug crimes. And I'm curious, what types of drug crimes can someone be arrested for in Indiana? I guess I don't know how to answer. It's so ingrained in, I mean, what can't they be? I mean, what's, what's more than that? I mean, if either you're allowed to have it by prescription or you can buy it over the counter and anything outside of those things you can get arrested for. Oregano is still legal as far as I know. Does the amount of drugs um, matter? Like, could you, does that change the charge could you be arrested for i mean um, it depends on the level it'll affect the level of offense um and then the nature of the drug i mean having they call them legend drugs things that you can get basically what i would describe prescription drugs you can't really get high on uh, i think like maybe Vi viagra might be one of those <laughs> a legend drug like if you have that without a prescription it's it is a crime um but it's not like having um you know, Ritalin, which I think is just a, you know, a felony under a, as a controlled substance, not as a legend drug. So having one pill, um, that's not your prescription. Could you be arrested for that? Certainly. What if you had a whole bunch? Could you be charged with intent to distribute or could you claim that they're all for you? I mean, you can always claim it's all free. <laughs> that doesn't mean they'll believe you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you claim and what's believable. Um, and certainly it's called possession with intent. In Indiana, there's two kinds of what you're talking about is dealing. And you can have, dealing is really only the transfer of possession from one person to the other. Um, and you can have direct dealing, for instance, somebody actually documents a sale uh, or possession with intent is, which is what you were talking about. Um, and then they, you know, it's a totality looking at number of circumstances, weight alone, 
no longer will get you to possession with intent under Indiana law, but it doesn't take much to, you know, in, indicate, you know, dealing, whether it be scale or baggies or lots of money. Separate packaging. Um, what kind of penalties come with drug crimes from the lowest level up to the highest level? Are they considered like low level um, crimes or high level crimes? Or can I think a lot of people spend a lot of years in jail on drug crimes and then some are... They do. I mean, well, it, it's all the way down to a B misdemeanor, the lowest second lowest uh, criminal offense for marijuana all the way up to I think the highest is a level two which when you think about it it's murder level one level two um, and you've got to have that's going to be dealing of a significant weight because it's you know there's a range of dealing offenses all felonies uh, but it's a range all the way up to two to the level two felony. Um, but you can get anything, you know, it's prior, you know, Mar as we see Marion County is not even prosecuting those right now. And I think if I remember correctly, the prosecutor's office figured out they weren't prosecuting 76% of them anyway, uh, because they were being diverted, which is an agreement where you basically, you admit that you did it, but they dismiss the case. Uh, and I and I think ultimately the prosecutor's office just didn't think it was worth their time to process all those cases for no reason. Why are the penalties for drug crimes so strong? Like, why so many years in jail for some of these people? The war on drugs. Has yeah. that helped? Well, as a uh, former soldier in the uh, war on drugs, I think it's an epic failure. Uh, I don't think that we're making a dent in the supply, the demand, um, I think that we're, you know, my two senses, we're focusing a resource on the wrong place. I mean, we've got to focus on the supply end. I think, I don't know, I, I, I guess it's just easy and it's more money making to make more prisons, to send people for longer. I mean, you know, back when it was the 80s when that stuff started over crack and you know, who, you know, there are a lot of reasons why, but I think the initial thought was a, that it would have a deterrent effect. But I think decades of exercising that has shown that that is not, in fact, effective. Right. Yeah. It, I can't remember if we talked about this during one of our podcasts that didn't air or if we talked about it in one that did air but it deterrence is a rational uh response right uh so if if you're passing a law it's because that deters people from doing things you're assuming that the people will be rational that you're trying to deter right um but drug addicts are not rational right um and people generally just aren't rational about drugs at all. Um, so prophylactic measures by just making a thing completely illegal uh, will not stop people from trying to use them because they won't engage in rational thought before they make the decision. Um, and so your rational deterrent won't stop them. Um, and... Typically, your your rational deterrent laws about anything uh, will not stop irrational people um, from from committing those crimes. It just it won't it won't happen. Uh, all you do when you create that prophylactic law that that makes thing makes a thing completely illegal is you just hand it over to people who are willing to engage in illegal activity, including violence, in order to take on that trade. Um, and we've seen that over and over and over again in this country. Um, you know, we saw it in prohibition. Uh, as soon as we made beer and alcohol legal, what happened? The gangsters started running it in from Canada and, uh, you know, and they had a wonderful little booze trade going on there for, you know, right up until the day we made it legal again. Um, you see the same thing with marijuana and heroin who makes all the money off that now. 
the cartels in Mexico, right? Because they're the ones who are bringing it in. We just hand the entire business over to these people that we really do not want running any kind of business. Um, but that's what we do when when you just make something, you know, blanket illegal. Uh, you just say it's illegal to possess something. Um, you're just, uh, you're not going to stop people from using it. You are going to make some criminals a bunch of money, though. So going to a little history lesson here, um, how were the people able to end prohibition and how do you think the people can end the war on drugs? Can it be done the same way? Uh, well, prohibition was a little different than the war on drugs in that prohibition was created by a constitutional amendment. Um, so that's how they made booze illegal in the entire country to begin with, right? If you think about it, that would be really hard to do if you had to go state by state or county by county and get them to pass laws that made it illegal to possess alcohol. You probably couldn't get that done. Um, so what they did is they passed a constitutional amendment that just said, we have all agreed this is now illegal. Um, and then they repealed that amendment. Um, with everyone's favorite amendment, the 21st Amendment, um, which is why those liquor stores are named that way. Um, so could a constitutional amendment do the same thing for drug crimes? I mean, yes, it could. It would be a really complicated amendment, and it would be hard to write, but you know, we're a country full of talented people. I'm sure we can figure it out. So there are a couple of Indiana law enforcement departments, including Indianapolis's own IMPD, who have suspended police administration of the opioid overdose reversal medication until the end of the coronavirus pandemic. And this was done over concerns of possible transmission of the virus to the officers. And I was just wondering, as criminal defense lawyers, if you had any thoughts about this. Well, you know, uh, they're here to uh, protect and serve uh, right up until it's not convenient. And and then they, uh, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Uh, you, you might have a disease. By the way, several police officers already have this disease. And I bet you that um, th those people's tickets didn't get torn up. <laughs> well, and I guess that, you know, not only convenience that they've determined that the risk that this person is not of value this human being is not of value to perform their normal otherwise normal duties yeah i thought it was a sad article when i read it personally um well, to back up as well you know it's it's a bad place to put police in to be healthcare workers and i mean it, it, it's just it's it's just a hard situation um so we're going to move on now to a Court of Appeals opinion, Ferris versus the state of Indiana. Now, in this case, Ferris was pulled over for failing to activate his turn signal. And when he was asked to exit the vehicle, it was because he could not provide insurance and he refused to exit the vehicle. And in doing so, he proceeded to pat down his jacket, take it off and throw it in the back seat where a, a quote unquote aggressive pit bull was. Can you get pulled over for not turning your turn signal on? And can a cop order you out of the car because you can't prove you have insurance? Absolutely. Any traffic infraction is legal justification for the officer to initiate a traffic stop. Um, that's failure to use a turn signal. One of the favorites is a uh, failure to have your license plate l properly illuminated. Yeah. Uh, that's that's an easy one. I mean, that is just cause. I mean, if you're traveling on the roadways, you've got to be following following the law. And this comes to the don't commit two crimes at once. You got dope in the car. <laughs> use your turn signal. Make complete stops. Or don't commit any crimes. Uh, once again, we're not condoning or suggesting anyone actually go commit any crimes. But yeah, definitely don't commit two at once. 
can a cop order you out of the car because you can't provide proof of insurance? Is, is that reasonable? He can order you out of the car just because he wants to see how tall you are. He can, he can order you out of the car for any reason. Yeah, it's one of those. I mean, yeah, they can order you out while they're because ultimately it's kind of a it's a temporary uh, detention there. Um, And if they can, if the officer can articulate a reason why they would feel unsafe leaving you in your car, they can take you out for the duration of the of the stop. Um, and this comes back to you're not going to win an argument with a police officer on the side of the road if you think that he's being unreasonable in that demand. That may be true, but you're, you know, it's unlikely that you are going to do yourself any favors by initiating that legal discussion with a uniformed officer. Um, but yeah, I mean, they weren't going to let that car drive away. He didn't have, if it wasn't properly registered or insured, that car was not going to be driven away. So after Harris was pulled from the car and arrested, his vehicle was impounded and searched. Can't Is this typical? Do police, after you're arrested, they can impound your car and search it? Is this normal procedure? Almost always, uh, but there are some exceptions to it. Um, so if they are going to tow your car, then they are allowed to search it before they tow it. Um, and the reason is so that they can document what's inside of it so that they can't be accused of stealing things out of it later. Um, and I've always, it always occurred to me too, that, I mean, they really ought to be allowed to search just to make sure there aren't like bombs or other explosives that could go off. Right. Because you don't want to take it into impound and then have it explode, um, and destroy a bunch of other people's property or hurt people too. So, um, Good reason for them to search the car as part of a uh, a tow. Now, they don't always get to tow your car. Um, they, if you, when you, for example, if you get pulled over when you're driving in a city street and because of the street you're driving on, there is a place for you to pull over and just park and leave it legally parked on the side of the road, um, you know, cause it's a city street with street parking, uh, then they can't tow it, um, because it is not, um, there's no reason for them to move it. Um, the whole reason they have to tow cars is because after they're arresting the person who's driving it, they can't just leave it sitting in the street. Right. Right. Um, but if you pull it over into a legal parking spot where you're allowed to leave it, um, then they can't tow it. Um, and also, when they're doing an inventory search of it, uh, it has to be clear that their inventory search was really actually to catalog all the information, all the things inside, not just as an excuse to get inside and look around. So if you don't actually, if the police officers don't then actually catalog the things inside, um, then potentially their search can get thrown out. So we're moving on to another Court of Appeals opinion, uh, Quintina versus the state of Indiana. Now, in this case, there's a Hendricks County Sheriff Depart- Sheriff's Department that received a tip that Quintina was traveling through the county with narcotics in his vehicle. Numerous officers were following him, and Quintina failed to use his turn signal, and he was pulled over. Can the cops pull you over off a tip, or do they have to have another reason? Like, did they have to wait for him not to use his turn signal, or could they have pulled him over just off of the tip? The tip alone was not enough. Uh, They had to wait for the traffic infraction. Um, So, yeah, and and they do this regularly, and it does not matter that they had an ulterior motive. It was what matters is that that they waited till they had a lawful justification to initiate the traffic stop um, because that's a seizure of a person. And then the way that they do this, like, okay, they think there's drugs. So they'll wait for the traffic infraction while they're issuing the infraction, the summons for the infraction, then they run the canine. Uh, Because if normally, you know, unless you just happen to get stopped by a canine officer, um, there's not going to be a dog available and they cannot extend a 
traffic stop for the sole purpose of getting a dog there. But in this case, they were ready, um, you know, to have the canine to get there and get it done. Um, but yeah, the tip alone wasn't enough. It doesn't mean that a tip in certain circumstances might be enough, but in this case, it, it clearly was. They didn't think it was. Yeah, there there are scenarios where a tip is enough. Um, not the one you've explained, but um, if it comes from, especially if it if it isn't anonymous and it comes from somebody the police know and that they know have provided them with credible information previously. And then also the circumstances of their tip match what they actually see when they go looking, you know. So if a person that they know who's given them reliable information before says uh, a guy named Jethro, no, wait, not Jethro, uh, uh, a guy named uh, Chad uh, will be driving a red Camaro at 3rd and um, Washington Street, and uh, he'll be there uh, at about 1245 and he'll be smoking a cigarette because he always smokes cigarettes because I know Chad and Chad loves him some camel lights. Uh, and so the police officers sit there at Washington and third street and they wait and sure enough at 1245, Chad rolls up with a, a cigarette in his mouth, uh, driving a red Camaro. And the tipster says, and he'll have a kilo of cocaine in his car. Um, that that's different. And that's probably good enough. Cassie says it's not. Let's see. The reason why I say I, I would I would argue that it's not not that a trial court might not find it okay um, is because all of those things that you said are things that a casual observer could tell you about Chad, like somebody who lives in the neighborhood, like identifying who, where someone, um, you know, what kind of car they drive, um, you know being able to see anything that a, that a public observer could, could tell they, they're a tipster, um, to take it to the next level needs to disclose some kind of special information, like inside information, you know, Chad drives or anybody that lives on Chad street or frankly works at his, you know, office or wherever, um, could tell you what car he drives. Um, so I got some search and seizure law wrong, apparently, so I'll definitely be sleeping on the couch tonight. No, no, it's a common mistake. And like I said, these are very close, close calls. And, you know, to do a temporary detention, um, it's a reasonableness standard. And I think where a tip comes in, you know, if someone's, if the tip is, oh, somebody has, you know, a smoke and marijuana versus an active, you know, what's the you know, there's a kidnapping or something, the court's going to give the law, you know, the police more leeway in detaining people to pursue something that's greater interest than less interest. Um, but again, you know, it's not jump into an arrest. It's allow you to do more of an investigation. In this court of appeals opinion uh, with Quintina, I noted that um, it mentioned that he waived his right to a jury trial for which he should receive some mitigating credit. Am I understanding this correctly, that if you waive your right to a trial that goes in your favor? Uh, at sentencing, yes. Um, so when you say sort of aggravating and mitigating circumstances, that, that means they were talking about what sentence he got for the crime that he committed. Um, and the court rec while the court recognizes that everyone has the right to a jury trial, they also recognize and the law recognizes that if everyone had a jury trial, the system would collapse. Uh, the government cannot possibly afford to prosecute even 10% of the people that they arrest. Um, so the system would not work if it weren't for plea agreements and if it weren't for people waiving jury. Um, so people waive jury sometimes and then have their case heard by the judge instead of a jury. Um, and the judge decides whether they're guilty or not guilty. And it cuts way back on the amount of time the trial takes and the amount of court resources that you have to dedicate to the entire process. And so it sounds like he waived jury and had his case heard by the judge and they gave him some mitigating credit uh, on his sentence. 
for doing that because it didn't cost the state as much money, time, and resources to bring him to justice. I find that interesting. I didn't know just waiving one of those rights would work in someone's favor and maybe lessen their sentence. Yeah, not every not every judge I think will recognize that as a mitigator and it's not list I don't think it's listed in the mitigation section of the sentencing statute, but the court is allowed to consider other things. There's like a catch-all at the end I think that says uh, it, it, the statute does not mention waiving from jury to bench, but it certainly talks about acceptance of responsibility. Um, and that's something that if you get to sentencing by way of admission, you are perceived as someone who's going to be more receptive to attempts to rehabilitate you. So you definitely get a mitigator there. Um, I did not catch the separation of just from, I mean, it's it's true from a jury to a, a bench trial, uh, but uh, the big, the statutory mitigator is accepting of Rutt's responsibility, which is trial versus no trial versus what type of trial. We're going to go back and touch on the marijuana laws in Indiana. Now, Indiana has its neighbors, Illinois and Michigan, where it is legal to use marijuana recreationally. And then Ohio, um, maybe another neighbor, they can use it medically. And there was some polls conducted by Normal and the state legislators back in 2019 that indicated that the majority of Hoosiers, up to 90% of them, approved medical marijuana and 80% of them approved marijuana for recreational use. My question is, is why do the laws not reflect what the citizens think? Well, for one, in my experience, most of those people who are responding to those polls don't participate in the political process. And if you're one of those, well, I'm not going to do anything. Well, no one's paying attention to you. Did 90% of those people not participate in the process, then you're a non-issue. And what you want is a non-issue because the the participants are saying something else. Um, But I mean, I guess the ultimate question comes down to why is this isn't just drugs? This is why do our elected officials not listen to the people? Um, Money is the answer, the short answer, in my opinion. Yeah, and we don't make them, right? Um, We have a two-party system which means uh, if the two parties agree they're going to do something a certain way, uh, the rest the population doesn't really have a lot of other choices. You know, they can pick from the Democrat that doesn't want to legalize marijuana or the Republican that doesn't want to legalize marijuana, and so marijuana doesn't get legalized. Um, you know, it's, it's a bug in the system, and it's not really one that they necessarily contemplated when they were creating it, but... Here we are, 220 years later, limping around trying to figure out how to fix it. And it's, um, yeah, but yeah, beer companies, they, they like being the, uh, the only legal, uh, not the only one, but they like being a legal drug. Uh, they would, they would like it very much if they were the only legal drug, um, pharmaceutical companies don't want you growing your medicine in your backyard. I mean, we're a capitalist country. This is uh, money makes the world go round. I mean, they're, they're in charge. And again, if you don't vote, then yeah, you're not, you're not counted your voice. You're... Yeah, so you have to vote. And it's weird to, it's also weird when you, rem- you have to remember, I mean, these are billion with a B uh, dollar companies, right? So, uh, a couple thousand dollars here and there to a state senator's campaign is nothing to them. It's like, I mean, it's not even a penny on the dollar. It's uh, three molecules of a penny <laughs> on the, you know, out of a dollar. Um, so it's not even that expensive to, you know, I don't want to say buy the vote, but it's not even too expensive to make the kind of donation necessary to see that you, uh, you get the proper type of recognition from your government. Uh, <laughs> if you, if you get what I'm saying, it's, it's, uh, easy for businesses to prevent things, big businesses, especially to prevent things like that from happening if that's what they want. 
So my takeaway here is that people should vote and vote according to what they think. Choose candidates that, or support candidates that reflect their their views. Yeah, I mean, look, lots of people are in favor of uh, recreational use of marijuana, but how high up on their list is it? Right. Um, will you will you vote for the guy who will legalize marijuana if he also wants to outlaw abortion? Will you vote for the guy who wants to legalize marijuana if he also wants to um, do some other you know, privatize the entire government or do some other crazy thing that that you don't want to happen? You know what I mean? Look, I think they ought to legalize marijuana, but it's not my number one issue. You know what I mean? What, for example, if he wants to legalize marijuana, but he also wants to repeal Obamacare, right? There are certain libertarian right-wing Republicans who you could probably paint in that with that brush, right? Definitely. They would legalize marijuana, but but their trade-off is you got to repeal Obamacare um, or outlaw abortion or something like that, which they could do with a constitutional amendment. Um, and yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd trade marijuana legalization for either of those things because my health care is a lot more important than using marijuana legally. And, and so is, uh, you know, women's right to choose. So it, it, that's the other way that they can create this problem, right? Is you either don't have a candidate to vote for or the one that you you want to vote for, for that issue is wrong on some other issues that are more important to you. There was a recent United States Court of Appeals opinion that wiped away a lower court's opinion that blocked the federal government from executing federal inmates. And this directly affects four federal inmates in the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute. Do you know anything about this opinion and have any thoughts on it? I do now because you sent it to us to read to prepare for this. No more 88-page opinions, okay, (laughs) Terry? That was not cool. That was really Sorry. not cool. And I'll I'll have to say, uh, Jake told me the pages and gave me a synopsis, and I decided that uh, his knowledge was sufficient <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast. So I will direct all questions to him. <laughs> what? <laughs> she gave me her synopsis. <laughs> uh, I didn't want no. them, and I gave them back. There'll be no more 88 pages. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, look, I didn't read that whole opinion. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, if if there's a a lawyer does not read an 88-page opinion unless it is about the, well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. Uh, I did not read the whole 88-page opinion. Um, what I can tell you is that a several inmates were arguing with the federal government about whether or not the federal government had to follow just the important parts of the state's regulations of their death penalty uh, statutes or every single little regulation of it. Um, if you want me to go into more detail about the dispute, I can. It It's kind of weird and complicated because the federal government is jacked up. Um so here's here's the deal. Like so for a long time the federal government just executed people the way they wanted to execute them, right? Uh hanging, I think usually was how they did it. And then in the 20s or the 30s they decided they didn't want to have their own way of doing it anymore, so they said if you're going to execute a person, you execute them based on the laws of their state. Um and I believe the state they choose is the the district of the the state that the district is in that the the federal district court is in. But the inmates and the federal government are arguing about whether what that means is they have to follow every rule that the state has in place, or they only have to follow the the sort of top line rules, the means, the is it a hanging or a lethal injection or the electric chair or some other means of execution. So that's what they were arguing about. Uh, District court said the federal government has to follow all the rules 
appeals court said, no, they don't. All they have to do is abide by the the basic top line requirements. Um, and those guys will probably appeal to the Supreme Court. They'll also probably lose uh, at the Supreme Court. One thing that did strike me about the whole thing, the whole procedure, was how in a hurry the Justice Department was to execute these guys. Like, um, because they've been, they had been, it had been stayed for years while they were waiting on, I don't know, new regulations or something like that, waiting for somebody to promulgate some new regulations to tell them how to kill these people. And once those were finally regulated, the government was like, sweet, you're getting executed, like next week. And they're like, wait. And so they filed a motion in federal court. And then the feds are like, no, throw this out, judge. We need to execute these people right away. <laughs> and the judges, like even the appeals court judge, I think noticed, or noted, or somebody noted, like you guys have been sitting around on this, on these guys for years. And now you can't wait like two months for us to have a normal legal process before you, uh, you know, before you execute them at every stage just recently, because obviously the bar administration is now running all that. Um, at every stage now, they're like, please just hurry up, hurry up, judge, hurry up, let us execute them. Please let us kill these guys. Hurry up, let us kill these guys. Um, which is just a weird position for your government to take, right? <laughs> like right. you would think the government would want to be very deliberative and very, uh, cautious about who they execute uh, and who they don't. But um, apparently the Bar Administration is uh, all about firing that juice chair up and getting some people uh, sent on to their next situation. Party of pro-life. <laughs> yeah, pro-life right up until we want to execute you. So there is a hot thing on netflix right now as everyone's staying at home it's called tiger king mm. or he is also a florida man and recently trump was asked to pardon tiger king and i don't <laughs> watch i it, trump said he'll consider it <laughs> no he won't <laughs> <laughs> that that was his response to the reporters is that he'll, he'll consider it or look into it um I didn't know much about Tiger King, so I did a little um, research, and he was like this guy that kind of like a zookeeper of animals he probably shouldn't have, like cheetahs and leopards and tigers and um, snow leopards. He he was also smuggling drugs. And he would, like, cut snakes open and put cocaine in them and sew them up. I think you mix that up. I watched that. Someone was doing that, but it wasn't. He's in prison for trying to kill that Carol Baskin's <laughs> woman. If you've heard all yes. of that stuff. Is it Carol Baskin or Carol Baskin's husband? She, no. <laughs> they think Carol killed her husband. Carol Baskin. Killed her husband, whacked him. Which is an independent thing from uh, a, lion, a Tiger King tried to hire someone to kill Carol. <laughs> she is a big cat rescue in Florida. His cat zoo was in like Iowa or something, but the he tried to hire someone in Florida. That's what he actually went to prison for. I'll tell you, I know a lot about these Tiger Kings. People say I'm a Tiger King. In fact, I used to be the king of all tigers, but I'm going to look into that. We're going to look into whether or not we're going to pardon the Tiger <laughs> King. The king of tiger, Tiger King. That's right. Very no big collusion. That wraps up this episode from Tales from the Brown Desk. Oh, thanks, Terry. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Brown Desk. Remember, while we may discuss legal issues and provide information regarding the law to our listeners, we do not intend to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Our advice may not be applicable to some legal issues. Please consult with an attorney you have hired to review your legal situation before you attempt to apply the things we have said to your case. 
If you'd like to schedule a consultation to talk to one of us about your criminal law case, please call us at 317-430-7370. If you have questions you'd like to be read on our next podcast, please email terry at t-e-r-i at rigneylawindy.com and uh, mention your name and your hometown and uh, title your email podcast question. The attorneys at Rigney Law do not comment on their current pending cases. Nothing we have said in this podcast is a comment on a case we are currently working on, even if your name is Chad or if you're from Florida. Take care.